Welcome back to Aliyah Yomi. Today we are going to be learning Mishpatim Sheni, the second Aliyah in Parshas Mishpatim. Mishpatim is really packed with a lot of halachas, a lot of laws, and perhaps only, the only way we can really look at it in a short span of time is rather than looking at an overview of the theme of each Aliyah, but looking at each of the laws in each of the Aliyahs and trying to understand them on their own terms very briefly. Our Aliyah Sheni consists of 21 psokim running from Perak Chof Alef Chof to Chof Beis Gimel. It contains seven main laws. We're going to look at each of them in sequence. The first law is the killing of a slave. We're told by the Torah that if a person will beat their slave or their maidservant, um, whether it be with their hand or with a staff, they will be avenged. They they will be held accountable. If it take if they beat them and it is detached, it is a few days later. Then lo yukam ki There will not be a revenge or vengeance in such a case. Now it's important to appreciate this idea because um, Judaism, in a certain sense, is an iconoclastic religion. It is a countercultural um, idea, which challenges the norms of the time in which it is in. Many people have asked, and there's great debates to be found on this topic, is why didn't Judaism ban slavery? Well, it is interesting to note that slavery was actually universal, certainly at the time that the Torah was given. Every single nation practiced it. Yet maybe God did not want to abolish slavery, but wanted human beings to. And therefore, Torah gave us, gave us certain guiding principles in which we were to understand what the Torah's will was and to come to that and arrive at that truth ourselves. In the words of Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, if history tells us anything, it is that God has patience, though it is often sorely tried. He wanted slavery abolished, but he wanted it to be done by free human beings coming to see of their own accord the evil it is and the evil it does. The God of history taught us to study history, had faith that eventually we would learn the lesson of history that freedom is indivisible. We must grant freedom to others if we truly seek it for ourselves. End quotation. And this is important to appreciate because this is something which, even till very recently, has not been fully appreciated. If one reads the, the life and times of Frederick Douglass, a black man who was a slave in Maryland, sought his freedom, escaped to the north, and writes a autobiography of experiences, he describes the following scenario, a most terrifying scenario. I speak advisedly when I say this, but that killing a slave or any colored person in Talbot County, Maryland, is not treated as a crime either by the courts or the community. Mr. Thomas Landman of St. Mitchell's killed two slaves, one of whom he killed with a hatchet by knocking his brains out. He used, the, used to boast of the, the commission and the awful and bloody deed. I've heard him do so laughingly, saying, among other things, that he was the only benefactor of his, of his country in the company, and that when others would do as much as he had done, he should be re relieved of those curse, and he describes them in a derogatory term. The wife of Mr. Giles Hick, Living about a short distance from where I used to live, murdered my wife's cousin, a young girl between 15 and 16 years of age, mangling her person in the most horrible manner and breaking her nose and breastbone with a stick so the poor girl expired in a few hours afterwards. She was immediately buried, but, uh, but had not been in, in an untimely grave, but a few hours before she was taken up and examined by the coroner, who decided that she had come to her death by severe beating. The offence for which the girl was thus, thus murdered was this. She had been set that night in, um, to mind Mrs. Hicks' baby. During the night, she fell asleep and the baby cried. She, having lost her rest and several nights previous, did not hear the crying. They were, they were both in the room with Mrs. Hicks. Mrs. Hicks, finding the girl slow to move, jumped out of her bed, seized an oak stick by arm of wood by the fireplace, and broke the girl's nose and breastbone, and thus ended her, her life. 
I will not say that this most horrid act produced no sensation in the community. It did produce sensation, but not enough to bring the murderess to punishment. There was a warrant issued for arrest, but it was never served. Thus she escaped not only punishment, but even the pain of being arraigned before the court for her horrid crime. This is in America. This is in the last two centuries, just to understand what's going on. So when the Torah describes this principle, and it says that if a person kills their slave, they will be avenged. There is a, a, a responsibility for it. That is countercultural even till recent times. The notion that the Torah is te te teaching us that life is life and not property is to be under understood and appreciated from this first law in, the, in this aliyah. The second law is causing a miscarriage um, and perhaps de a death. We're talking about a situation where two people are fighting and they, they instead of hitting the, their fellow, the one person hits a pregnant lady and she has a miscarriage, God forbid. <clears throat> if the woman lives, then he will be pa punished to pay for the value of that fetus lost. But if the woman does die, then venasata nefesh tachas nefesh. The man will be held responsible. Then we hear this very famous line, ayin tachas ayin, eye for an eye, shein tachas shein, tooth for a tooth, yad tachas yad. It goes to describe all these, rep um, the, what seems to be reciprocal punishments upon any offender few basic questions over here is why is there only money when there is no death you notice that if he the man killed the woman then there's he does not pay for the fetus but if the woman does not die then he pays for the fetus this is a, um, a <clears throat> important rule in the Gomorrah which is called Kim that when there's a capital crime or a very serious crime the lesser crime is waived the lesser pay, pay, punishment is waived. The Rashi does quote that there is a dispute over here where nefesh tachas nefesh means to say that the perpetrator is killed or is paying for his life because in this case it wasn't intentional. He was not intending to hit the woman as well. A debate that's had in the Gemara. Now, what does ayin tachas ayin mean? Eye for an eye. The Gemara Baba Kama gives an extensive description that this is understood in our tradition to be means the money for that eye. And many proofs are given. So example, for example, if a person, if it meant to uh, to literally take out, to gouge out the eye of the offender, then in that case, it may actually kill the offender. That would be a, would that, that would not be a, whisk, a risk the Torah would be willing to take. Um, and another example is tachas shoro, means his money. Uh, Hirsch points out that the word tachas in Tanakh is almost always used to describe compensation and not penalty. In this case over here, then it would be most likely that it means compensation and not penalty, meaning killing or, or maiming the, the, the offender. So why is it phrased like this? So it seems that the Torah wants to give us a sense of the gravity of such an action. And in order to understand that it's not simply just paying for money, it's really that that, that money in a certain sense is replacing something which is irreplaceable. That's why the Torah phrases this way. And why are all these examples given? So Gomorrah goes to great length. The Gomorrah Baba Kama goes to great length to describe the relevance of each of these ideas. So for instance, when it describes tachas um, that means to say that there is a burn is referring to the, the, the notion of tsar of pain that's caused. Petsa is a wound without blood. Chabura is a bruise. All these are different different iterations of, of the responsibility that a person has in causing damage to another person. The third law in Aralia is the eye of a tooth, uh, eye and tooth of a servant. The person beats their, their servant and the and knocks out an eye or a tooth. The, the slave that slave will go to freedom. Um, does this mean only tooth and eyes? Rashi says no, it refers to any digit that a person would, God forbid, maim in a, in a slave. The reason why the Torah phrases it as such is that a, we may think that perhaps it says te teeth because you may think that if a child's tooth is knocked out and it's going to be replaced, then it may not be not, not included. So it says tooth and it says eye because you may think that perhaps 
It's only something which one is born with, uh, born with, like an eye, but what about something which grows later, like a tooth? Perhaps not. So that's why the Torah uses both of these examples. But they are simply examples that if a person would inter- injure a serious injury to a slave, that slave would have the benefit of freedom because of that crime. We move further. The fourth law is the killing ox. We hear now about a, an ox which kills another person. The owner of the ox is going to it bears responsibility, and, and the ox is killed is stoned to death, but the but the owner is considered naki in the sense that he is acquitted the first time. But if it continues, if it's a shor nagach mitol shosham, so this becomes a, a habitual manner that this um, ox is goring, then, and the owners don't look after it, then we see that the, not only will the ox be killed, but the ba'alav yumas, the owners will die um, or um, or pay kofer, which is a t- atonement payment. Um, for, for this, and so this refers to whether the victims, uh, an adult, a minor, a slave, any anybody, will be will will be will be included in this. When it comes to to a slave, there is also there's a financial penalty, as well as the killing of the ox. <clears throat> a few basic questions over here: Is how could there ever be a shor muad in this case? How could there ever be a goring ox if it's killed the first time round? So it seems to be that this is part of the culpability of the owner is the owner does not get rid of the ox the first time around, even though they really should. Now, do we really kill the owner? She says, no. That means the misa that described, the death over here is misa bide shomayim, which means Hashem will take care of it, which perhaps is more, more terrifying. Finally, what is kofer? What is this payment of kofer? The Gomorrah in Marcus Beis and Beis tells us that kufra is a kapara, that kofer, this payment, is actually an atonement for the soul of the person who really li- is, is liable for the death of the victim. Law number five is the open pit. So we hear about a person who opens up or digs a pit and doesn't uh, cover it. And into it falls somebody else's livestock. The owner of the pit will have to pay the, um, the, um, the, the owner and the mace, and the owner will retain, the, and, and he will retain his uh, dead body. Now, what's interesting over here is how does one, uh, does one have to own the pit? Rashi says, well, you could either own by digging it or digging deeper a pit that is already there or not covering it. In fact, the, the Gemara describes that the bore is one of the two things that the Torah makes your property, even though you perhaps don't even own it because in the Rosh Hashanah, in the public domain. It is worthwhile noting that there are limitations to this, uh, this, this damage caused by a bore, by a pit, and that is, is that it is not liable, you're not liable for capital cases, only for financial cases when it is kalim, when it is the vessels of another person which fall into the pit. Law number six in the Aliyah is the damaging ox. Similar kind of pattern over here. We have a an ox of yours which goes and gores some something of another person. Then in that case, we hear for the first three times there is half payment, um, and then on the third time it says if it's a shor nagach again an ox which is used to goring, then you'll pay the um, the owners the full amount. So what is the notion? Or how do we interpret the half damages of the first few times? The Gemara Baba Kamadav Tesvavamambeis tells us a very fascinating debate which is had, and that is what is Palga Nizka? What is the notion of this half damage? So the Rav Papa says Mamona, and Rav Huna says Knas. One says it's compensation, the other one says it, it is a, a penalty. How do we understand the two interpretations? So Rav Papa says it Mamona, it is compensation, because we generally assume that uh, that, that, that uh, oxen are love becheska shimurkami. So therefore, they're not really considered as if they're fully guarded. And really, the owner should have paid the full amount right now. But the Torah says, how could it be that, that, that everybody's going to, going to be paranoid about their oxen? So the Torah waves half the payment, but really, um, really, it should be, the owner should be paying 
the full amount, so therefore this is considered a compensation. However, Rav Runa says that a, a, the general oxen are considered becheskas shimur, they are considered as if they are guarded, and therefore really they should not be paying anything. This is a, a very unusual, nominally case. Um, and therefore it's considered a knas, a penalty, in order to guard it from, from, to, from being a goring ox in the future as well. Um, and where, when, do, when does the owner start paying full damages? So the mission of Abba Lamad Zayin and Aleph, Tells us about like as Rabbi Hun and Rabbi Meir as to whether it's three days of goring or three gorings itself, which make the ox. Is it the incidents or is it the days which create habit, which can be have a market change? Finally, the seventh and last law in this aliyah is the stealing and slaughtering of livestock. We see that if a person steals an ox or a lamb and then shechts it and sells it, then they'll pay five cattle back or um, or four um, of their sheep's back. If the thief is found in a the the uh, terrace in a um, a tunnel, then the, and the, the owner kills them. Ain loy damim. There will not be blood. But if zorcha shemeshalav damim loy, if the sun shines, then he will have to pay for that. Um, and then finally, we hear about the the the, the law that if a person steals any regular um, any regular item without shechting it and selling it, you pay back double. And that's the penalty for theft as well. Why the penalty of four and five in the case of shechting and selling it? So this seems to be an extended penalty for the, for such an act of taking somebody else's property shamelessly. Um, and so that's four for a lamb and five for a cow. Rashi explains the Torah respects the dignity of the person. And if a person has to carry a lamb on his shoulder, it's very, uh, very um, ignoble. It's very lacking dignity. And therefore a person does not have to pay back the full five like one would with an ox, which one could carry one could lead through the, through the public domain. Why in the in the in this topic over here is the person who is found in a tunnel not liable when killed? Um. So the Rashi quotes the Gemara in Sanhedrin that is that the underlying mindset of a burglar when coming into somebody else's property is that when he will perhaps be taking something and if he encounters the owner, the owner will most likely stand up for his property even to the to the degree of willing to kill for it. And therefore, the burglar comes in with the assumption that if he is, in fact, um, uh, accosted by the owner, he would be willing to save himself by killing the owner. So that being the case, um, we assume that this person comes in with malintent, even to the point of killing, and the Torah tells us, Anybody who comes to attack you, you should attack them first. This is a very important law, which dictates many important precepts in Judaism, individualistically and nationally as well. Uh, Sotovagic points out that the Torah does take into account the property rights of individuals and recognizes a person's connection to them so much so that the psychological consideration that they'll stand up for their property um, is is considered in halacha and the basic ideas of protecting it as well. Judaism is not about turning out the cheek. It is a strong and resilient religion about understanding the norms of humanity and society as, as a whole. These are the seven laws we learned in the second alley. In the meantime, have a wonderful and meaningful day.